you know, I'll be there for no matter what he does. But I would love to see him uh, do something just totally like not with the storybook aesthetic, like to see mm. if he could do like just something outside of that sort of shake off Wes Anderson as genre. Get, like, what would that look like? I, I just because he's got a darkness. He has that. He in does. Him. He does. Yeah. <laughs> Well, essentially, you're just describing Noah Baumbach. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, that's <is> true. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are from San Diego, California. Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today with us, we have a guest. Uh, We did mention at the end of the last podcast that a guest was going to be coming on to help us discuss the movies this week, as well as promoting their own film. Uh, we have a good friend of mine, Andy Motts. And are you still in Washington or are you in California now? Yeah, I'm in Seattle. All right. So, so that's where the majority of the MacGuffin resides, actually. It's based in Seattle. <laughs> Most of the writers and the editors come from there, so... Cool. Yeah. yeah, there's a huge, that makes sense. It's like such a huge um, film loving community in Seattle. It's like, really, it's a, it's a cinephile town. So. Yeah, I believe the, or, the original editor for the MacGuffin, he was getting uh, screeners and, and, and things from the Seattle International Film Festival and used that as a way to uh, start a version of this podcast where he was doing different interviews with filmmakers and such. So we're kind of going back to the MacGuffin roots by highlighting an independent filmmaker. And I've known you since grad school, Andy, and you uh, came on this podcast today, one, to help us review Asteroid City, the new Wes Anderson film. But you're also here to talk about your film, your first feature-length film, a documentary and I'd like you to, to sort of describe uh, the premise of the documentary and when you got started with it and and how far along you are with your fundraiser. Yeah. Well, again, thanks for having me on. Um, so super excited to be here. And the film that I'm currently in post-production for is called Mask. Um, it's yeah, an experimental documentary, feature length. Um, all about like alternative masculinity and gender in America today, and uh, it what it's kind of like a meta documentary. It it uh, follows me like I'm a character in the film as I interviewed various people who are kind of modeling different ways of being masculine in the world, um, while then also reflecting on my own um, upbringing and understanding of masculinity um, within myself. So it's kind of this, yeah, like a meta journey. And it did not start off that way at all. I intended not to be in it at all, actually. (laughs) When I started it, I was like, I'm just going to make a short film 
It's back in 2019. Wow. Um, I was like, I'm just going to be make a short film about people who are kind of uh, modeling masculinity outside of traditional masculinity. And uh, but then I started collecting interviews and I got more and more interviews and started thinking, you know, about how to string it together as a as a feature and like what the missing piece was or what was the glue. And I said the glue was me. That's a little bit of the journey. Um, And yeah, and we're crowdfunding to basically finish the movie. So we've shot it. It's almost picture locked. And uh, we are just need funds for like a composer and a sound mixer and a colorist. So we're like really, really close. So it's been really nice to see it come together in the edit room after many years of film, like filming 2019, pausing in 2020, fits and starts, you know, throughout the uh, subsequent years. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit about Mask. Yeah. And... You know, I I watched the trailer, and we're going to go ahead and watch the trailer as well. And then I have some questions about how it kind of came together. So I'll go ahead and play your trailer off of the Vimeo channel. And then uh, we'll kind of get into some of the questions I have about uh, the making of it. I grew up seeing people say, this is for this gender, this is for just this gender across cultures. And I think mostly it just made me a little bit of a contrarian with gender. I was like, no, like, but here this happens here, this happens here, so somebody's got to be wrong and maybe none of this is for gender and we've all created these boxes. I was, you know, bullied. I was made fun of because I was always last or I was the, the sissy or the girl. But when it came time to, you know, playing with dolls or making clothes for them or planting flowers in gardens, I was really good at that. Um, and it just has evolved into where I am today. You've been told your entire life that there's only one way to be. And that's not what you are, then that means that you're nothing. And for me, thanks to my eternal optimism, I knew that I wasn't nothing. So it shifted the way that I saw everything. And specifically that men are the perpetrators, that's really it's really sad to me and it's disappointing because I'm part of the male gender, I guess, but I try to be a different example and try to say, look, there are people out here that are doing things differently that you can trust and that aren't going to do horrible things. Making this documentary, when I'm mm. talking to them about their sexuality or their like masculinity growing up, I was just like, this is like, I realized like a lot of the stuff wasn't kind of resolved. Like for, for me, you? For me. With, uh, what was it, Wild at Heart and everything, being taught about masculinity was a huge part of our upbringing. You were the pastor's son, and so everyone knew you, but in a way, that probably made you feel more invisible. Yeah. Because they saw you one way, yeah. and you couldn't fulfill that. <laughs> like, like who, who, who decided what is, what is and what isn't masculine? Uh, it's interesting to hear that you originally intended this to be a short film feature, because uh, one of the questions I had was, you know, when you were putting this together, oftentimes you hear about the making of documentaries. They can be sort of painstaking because you're collecting interview footage or, uh, you know, whatever kind of primary footage you're using. And then you sort of find the spine of the narrative in what could be hours and hours and hours of 
uh, footage, when it was all said and done, since you you're down to the editing process, and you feel like you you have a cut that's somewhat locked, how much did you film versus how much are you're using? Oh my goodness! I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I you know, it's hard to think. I mean, we just have hours and hours and hours, and it's going to be like an eighty minute you know, thing like each interview that I did, I interviewed seven people and each interview runs like two hours at least. Um, and then that's why I'm counting all the other footage um, that I had shot after the interviews. Um, and it really is, it's interesting. Cause it really is about like that. It feels like the opposite of narrative filmmaking where it's like you have a script and then you shoot the script and you kind of put it together and post-production it's like you almost like shoot without a script and then like editing is like writing the script in a mm -hmm. lot of ways because you're like trying to figure out like okay what is the structure what do we have um by looking at what you shot like and even for example like we i thought i was like done shooting and then we went to edit and we're like oh no we're not done shooting we need to like go back and film hours more um so it's definitely it's a unique process and one that's kind of unique or uh, been um, new to me, having done a lot of narrative work before. Yeah. And were you familiar with most of your interview subjects? Like, did you know exactly who you were going to be talking to or did you find them in like casting calls or uh, how do you come across most of your subjects? Yeah, honestly, most of them, I would say all all of them were just people I had come across in my life um, in various circles. So um, who I just like thought were really um, fascinating, like people and really were um, modeling like um, non-traditional kind of ways of, of masculinity. And so it was really um I did a, some outreach, but a lot of it was as people that over like the past, like over like the past, you know, like eight years of living in Los Angeles and working at a nonprofit and volunteering or um, doing filmmaking, kind of that those worlds um, just found people who were willing to uh, go on camera and like share their life stories. <laughs> so I thought one of the things that was really interesting about your documentary and that you mentioned was that you decided to include your story in sort of after the fact, after you'd already collected or during somewhere in the process, you found out that, and I think this is so often the case, even with narrative filmmakers, even a lot of times with filmmakers who are working from other people's screenplays, is that they find out that their first few films are movies about themselves in some form or another. And... Was that a sort of discombobulating experience, being able to collect this footage from your life and then figure out what is your story in this? Did it feel sort of journalistic or, uh, yeah, kind of walk us through that experience? Yeah, you know, it's, sorry, I just laughed because it's like been very terrifying, but very um <laughs> healing at the same time. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it, and it wasn't even like for a long time, I, you know, I was like, I'm not going to be in it. And then it was multiple people kept saying, I think you should be in it. 
I think your experiences might be like what holds it together. And I kept saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Um, and then after like it, numerous people said, that's what I should do. And I was trying to edit it together and it wasn't working. I was like, maybe I should actually do this. And so, and I went through kind of like really trying to figure out, like looking at like documentarians, various works, like different ways of telling their stories. Right. Um, and trying to kind of figure out like what my approach would be to telling my, my story, but it was like really, um, challenging. I don't know, like, you know, going back into like looking at, uh, home videos can be this mixture of like, uh, sadness mixed with humor, um, a lot of the times. And, um, that can be its own experience. And, uh, I decided to talk to how I decided to ultimately do it was like talk to childhood friends and have conversations with them about our upbringing, um, collective upbringing. And, um, through that, tell my narrative. And so instead of doing voiceover or instead of even me talking directly to the camera, it's like me kind of having these various conversations with people um, and family members and that kind of stuff, while also including home videos. Yeah, I think it's a really smart way to go about it. I think a lot of the times, for me personally, when I watch documentaries and the director has to like break the fourth wall and like stare directly into camera and start telling you the audience what the movie is, it can sort of like take me out a little bit or like faith in the material to tell itself. Whereas with you, you're literally turning yourself into one of many different subjects. Um, yeah. And, and it still allows that sort of degree of separation where now it becomes more autobiographical. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And like, I think there's something, um, hopefully it has that I'm really kind of going for like pre-chorus approach and for stories that, you know, contradict and we, the, the film really tries to highlight contradictions and or similarities and, um, does that. So like everything is in conversation with each other. And I think, by having it instead of for a while, I was going to do voiceover where it was going to be like voiceover over images and me telling what I thought my story was. But this way is much more vulnerable because I'm like in front of the camera and I'm having conversations. That I don't know where they're going to go um, with people from my past. who I'm not really sure everyone experiences the past differently. Um, so I'm not really sure how they've experienced, you know, um, the same events and et cetera. Um, and so it allowed for a deeper connection, one, with people that I've known my whole life, which is really beautiful. But also, I think it allowed for a more organic way uh, for the audience into um, the kind of the world that I grew up in. That makes a lot of sense to me. And and especially especially inserting yourself into the, the documentary, I feel like that vulnerability probably gives a feeling of a, a more honest portrayal um because of that exact thing that you're talking about like i i love the concept of your documentary as um as someone who identifies as uh cis heterosexual male right like especially it's very timely right like especially now in 2023 like 
this idea of what is masculinity is so it's not talked about. Right. But there are these assumptions that are made about it. Uh, and for for instance, as a stupid little anecdote, um, I have no problem going out with my wife and like wearing like a full romper. And the the other night we went to this event and like I got face paint done and it like matched my outfit. And all night long I was getting compliments and they were all from men. And it was all this all right. a, this idea. And as far as I could tell, most of them uh, were probably straight identifying, you know. And I just realized that there is this uh, um, this assumption with what masculinity is. And when people who identify as typically masculine see people break out of that, it, it can have very interesting results. Yeah. I mean, that's so fascinating. I mean, I think it's actually, it's actually a really hopeful story, in my <laughs> opinion, because, I mean, I feel like there are a lot of circles or a world, you know, 20, 10 or 20 years ago where, you know, either you would have felt very uncomfortable doing that. Yes. Like you, people would have been judging you and like you would not be getting compliments from other men in the room. Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I also, you know, I live in San Diego, which is it's very interesting city. Like it, it has a, a sort of interesting mix of uh, conservative ideology with very liberal, like, you know, Californian ideology. Um, so it can be unpredictable, like kind of depending on the area you're in. You know, personally, I've reached an area in my life where I just don't give a shit. Like I, I am comfortable enough to not give a shit. And it's very interesting to see all of the the men who are not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, this is a whole, you know, thing of like I, there's I feel like everyone uh, is collectively questioning. Um, a lot of people are questioning what masculinity is, what gender is, and are looking for different ways of mm. being masculine, looking at different ways of understanding gender that's more liberating and more kinder and not as, uh, you know, really violent or harsh or um, traumatic. And then I think there's also, but I think that can be destabilizing, right? Um, so redefining something, questioning it can be, there's a moment of like, well, then who am I, right? Mm -hmm. If you're questioning something that's very sensitive, very core of yourself. And so I think that sometimes that can, that's like where fragile masculinity kind of toxic, yeah. fragile masculinity comes into is this like, um, if you feel like you're being challenged and something core within you, um, is unstable, then I think one response is what we see like violence or yeah um, absolutely yeah it can be and very I, scary <laughs> and like the people some of the people i interview like they definitely like have this moment of like you know if i if i'm not this way then what does that make mm -hmm. me and and you know i think and the, what makes i think this the people i interviewed so kind of amazing is that um they turned like they became softer through the experience versus becoming harder like they allowed the uncertainty to kind of shape them in a way that made them more open to the world. Um, and I was kind of curious as to like how that happens, mm -hmm. you know, like why did some people, um, yeah. 
more uh, closed, but then there are those who become more open and kind of ex- mm-hmm. examining that too. So, sorry, that's a lot of, yeah, it's a whole, it's a huge, um, big subject. It's a really big subject. And it's yeah, really important. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if anything, it's, I would imagine as a project just on a conceptual thematic level, it was more about where to narrow than where to, mm-hmm. you know, keep it from, going into further and further details outside of the scope of something it's manageable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, like, I, I think I tried to, um, what I tried to focus on was like just looking at non-traditional. So like less, um, I'm not making a documentary about the, I mean, it is inadvertently, it is about the ramifications of toxic masculinity. It is about the effects of patriarchy but it's not um, directly about those things. It's those things come up because it's about people who are like kind of living outside of the norm. And that was kind of like my, um, my lens. I try to keep very narrow again, very challenging, but that was like the, I was like, okay, so it's like, what's, what is alternative and um, what is non-traditional and what, what, what can we learn from people who are already living into that? Um was right. kind of like my lens. And so then that's kind of, that helps narrow it down a little bit, you know? I mean, of mm-hmm. course, like when you're doing the interviews, you're just like, you can totally like, I, I, and I didn't mean to do this, but I ended up like interviewing two people who were, are both gay and were both in the mil. One was in the military when you were like kicked out, like, and like, you know, just honorable discharge. And then the other one was in the military during don't ask, don't tell. And like their mm-hmm. experiences were really interesting, but that's, I can't like, I'm not gonna, <laughs> That's not gonna make it into the movie, you know. Like it's really fascinating mm-hmm. stuff. So that's another part about documentaries too, is like figuring out like what is the streamlining. So they have a north star to sort of follow. Yeah. 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 One last question about the the content of the documentary. This might sound like a dumb question, but I figure I might be one of the first pe- people to ask it. So is mask a double meaning oh yeah totally i mean i think you know i think it's, it's sh- well one you know it's like short for masculine sure um but then of course like there's this idea of p- putting a mask on to try to pre- present as masculine as a certain way hiding who you really are um and then also i feel like it has like a third meaning like you know like this like even in um like in like queer male communities there's this like common term used mask for mask Mm-hmm. you know, about like people looking for masculine people mm-hmm. and kind of questioning what that even is um, and why we use those terms. So it's kind of this, there's a lot going on in the title, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I figured as much, but I, I couldn't not ask. No, so, no, totally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, direct people to like, where are you in the, in the uh, crowdfunding uh, what's your yes. goals for crowdfunding? Where are you right now? And where should people go to help get the project finished? Yeah, so we're almost halfway to fully funded. So we still have a bit of a ways to go. Um, so like any little bit helps. And right now is like a really um, critical time uh, because we just need more, keep the momentum going. Um, and with the platform it's on, we have to raise at least 80% of our goal to keep what we've raised. Um, 
So really working towards getting fully funded, but at the very least, definitely getting 80%. Um, you can find more at um, Student Sparks website and search for mask. Uh, go to my social media channels. So just search, you know, either Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Andy Motz, M-O-T-Z. Um, and I'll have all the links there. Um, and you can even go to my website, anymots.com, and there's a page there that will send you to the fundraising or the crowdfunding link as well. Um, so any support mm. would be much appreciated. Right. And yeah, this- I mean, I, I, I think uh, this sounds like a, a really cool documentary. I think um sounds very interesting and uh, conceptually something that especially men need to have this conversation right now um, in, in this time and in, in a climate that allows for people like Joe Rogan and Andrew Tate to sort of dominate that kind of conversation. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that that we definitely need uh, an understanding of, of alternate uh, identities of masculinity. Yeah. And I think, you know, that was, you know, I think they dominate so much toxic uh, masculinity dominates so much of the conversation. And I think Mm -hmm. it's hard sometimes to see like, well, what could be an alternative? And I think, but the thing is, we see it every day. And so hopefully the Mm -hmm. film highlights that, that everydayness of those pushing against um, the toxic, toxic forms. Sure. Start off with our conversation on the new West Angeles film, Astrid City. Keith, why don't you uh, give us the rundown? What's, what's oh. going on in this movie? How did I know you were going to make me set it up? <laughs> so a... Gosh, how do you begin? You know, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't want to give away kind of the framing device of this movie immediately because I, I feel like that is kind of where a lot of the juice is. Um, so essentially this is a story about uh, Jason Schwartzman as Augie Steenbeck. Um, uh, him and his family break down in a small desert city uh, called Asteroid City, a desert town. Their car breaks down. Uh, they were traveling through for his son to attend a science conference for uh, sort of um, smart kids. And uh, along the way, uh, they meet various other people who are happen to be in this town. And without giving too much away, they get sort of trapped there by, uh, we'll say, extraterrestrial circumstance. See, that's the part I would have thought was more of a spoiler, but it's more about the aesthetics, more about the imagination than it is. That's a fancy word for vibes. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) But it's more about those things than it is necessarily the content. Um, And certainly it's very character-oriented. We see a lot of that in his work as well. Something interesting, and you said this is sort of the juice of the movie, for you and for me it's more of a place of friction is we've seen Wes Anderson become more and more interested about stories about storytelling where 
Uh, I think back to like Grand Budapest Hotel, where you have the Jude Law character who's writing a book. So he interviews the F. Marie Abraham character who's recounts this past story of his life. So we're like three steps removed from the story um, and initially before we go into scene. And uh, the French Dispatch, his last film was, a, uh, was a, an anthology film, but it was under the guise of these articles written for this um, wartime zine. And this movie is really interested in theater. You know, it's sort of presented as, you know, we get this uh, this framing device of Brian Cranston, who is a our closest proximity to the story, as he recounts the making of a play mm-hmm. that takes place within the story that we're seeing. And it cuts back and forth the making of a play um, in black and white where the actors and the characters are trying to figure out their process, figure out what their character motivation is, their little flirtations going on between them and discrepancies they have with their director I don't know. I'm sort of I'm sort of fascinated by this this phase of his career right now, where he seems less and less interested in being connected to mm-hmm. the worlds he's creating. Like he's he's almost, you know, there's always been an artifice to his. Yeah, but the, but this movie is obsessed with artifice. It's about yeah. the artifice. Uh, and, you know, I said that's where the juice is. Sometimes there's pulp in the juice, Cassidy. <laughs> okay. I think I feel you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. what I, it, For me, and I guess I'm just starting with opinion here, and then we can actually get into mm-hmm. sort of what works and doesn't work. This many degrees of separation this sort of frame within a frame within a frame feels almost like he's running away from emotional storytelling more and more so. Like I think of, mm-hmm. you know, his first few films and, you know, there's aspects of that that pop up here, but he seemed much more connected to his characters than he does now, where now it's, all sort of in service of concept mm-hmm. um, to the point now where even the characters themselves are just conceptual. Was that a problem for anybody else? No, I, I it wasn't a problem for me because I, I think the performances, the performances are so good and they're so compelling. So I was just like kind of enthralled by their performances and um, they're conceptual, but, or maybe archetypal is a better way to put it. Like, you know, like they're like maybe kind of like the actress, the scientist, the, you know, the military guy. But like, I think they, the performances and their eccentricities like really bring, I don't know, vibrancy that I, I don't know. I I totally get what you're saying, but it didn't bother me. I I was like, I don't know. I I guess I was here for it because it didn't feel, um, like he he still has like compassion for them, I feel. 
And I still feel there's a compassionate lens. So it's not like he's discarding them. Yeah, that's that's my my take on the it's interesting though to think about it, like this them as concepts, less humans. Especially when you think about Darjeeling Limited or um yeah, some of the bombs films. or something Ten like that. Bombs, yeah. yeah. This one, this one felt me, left me feeling a, a little cold. Uh, I, I felt kind of, it, and I think there's some intentionality to that, right? Like the characters are in this sort of desolate wasteland. Thematically, I, I almost feel similarly. Like I, I just felt so sort of uh, not out to sea, but like sort of stuck in the desert. Um, to me, this felt very pandemic, like, you know, he's directly addressing that at times. Um, but the, the only part of the movie that I felt like I personally sort of attached to, um, was when the actor who's playing Augie has the scene on the balcony Mm -hmm. backstage um, with the the actor who was playing his wife, uh, Margot Robbie. Who, whose character was actually cut from the production that we see in the scene. Yeah, to, to me yeah. that was where, that was the closest that I felt like, oh, okay, this is working for me. Because it, it, it to me it arrived at this sort of emotionality um, and to, I, I felt like the rest of the movie was sort of devoid of that, that I, I just felt like I didn't have anything to really attach to. Like, to me, it was like, oh, okay. Like this is a very Wes Anderson movie. Um, I did think it was very funny. Uh, I think as maybe some of his best comedic beats, um, and, and maybe that is a part of it as well is uh, uh, trying to detach um, from that sort of personal tragedy. But for the most of it, I, I, I felt a little cold. Yeah, I mean, I, me too, a little bit. I mean, I, I was in it more than, say, the French Dish Batch, which honestly, I... Oh, I, I personally liked the French Dish Batch much, much more. This... To me, this is probably my least favorite Wes Anderson since the Darjeeling Limited. Okay, wow. I see. I uh, I don't remember much about the French Dispatch other than a character or two, or you know, mm-hmm. certain situations. Whereas this, I felt like I was pretty invested in the story when it decided to be about story. Um, when it gets more into the meta navel gazing stuff. I felt like, okay, well now we're like commenting on what we're seeing. And it always sort of felt like the movie was on pause when, when those segments are happening. And then when we go finally go back in the scene and we pick up where we left off, it's like the movie has to make up the momentum. It just lost from the, from the meta stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my take was sort of this herky jerky feel with it, but I I uh, I didn't I come I came to enjoy the the situations and the characters and 
the the atmosphere of Asteroid City itself. I, I love the way it looks. I think, mm-hmm. you know, the art direction is immaculate. Um, I mean, painterly is a adjective that's used way too often, but in this case, it it is intentionally like these kind of these fake matte backgrounds corrected within an inch of its life. And it's all, every sequence is perfectly framed, um, which is something he's always been good at. But here it seems like he's really drawing attention to that almost. Um, I, I went back and was looking at uh, a Western, Southwestern painting from that era, oil painting and stuff like that, where they use a lot of that sort of um, flatness. Like intentional flatness, where you don't add a lot of shading or anything like that, and you just kind of kind of create layers. Um, and I was also looking at a lot of the the time period stuff uh, because this takes place like in the fifties, so like mm-hmm. this is the height of the post war era, and I feel like the the two places where the movie works the most is as a comedy i agree there's some really funny stuff here um especially once they introduce the alien stuff and everyone's <laughs> reaction to it and it almost kind of comes out of nowhere but like we see we can see like nuclear testing in the background um, well, and, and like, you know, with a lot of alien lore, like a lot of it always, you know, kind of comes back to like Roswell, New Mexico. Sure. And this this sort of like Americana of uh, this like desolate location. So like it does fit, but it is it it is a strange uh, transition. Right. So the other place that I think that works really well is I think there's a a really interesting satire here about American exceptionalism and mm-hmm. this this idea of you know capturing Americana at the height of uh, the post-war era where everyone was the most successful and wealthy they'd been as a nation at that point. We had just come off of a string of uh, military victories. We felt like we were on top of the world. And there's this kind of scientific uh, optimism. Um, you know, this is around the time that we're like space races getting going. And that all kind of plays into sort of the hokey sci fi science that these genius kids are working on. Once they see something outside of their worldview, once they, you know, they all of a sudden that kind of throws a wrench into this idea of we're on top of it, you know, with like whatever in the world, you know, enter in something intergalactic that we have no way of understanding Mm. and it throws everything up into upheaval. And I think that that same kind of upheaval is mirrored in the individual character profiles um, going in, you know, uh, Augie uh, 
wife having just died and they're looking for a place to spread her ashes. An actress who's in between things with her career and, um, you know, there's, uh, the Tom Hanks character who's, who's this sort of unapproving person coming in to the situation. Um, we see the new world, like you were talking about, Andy, with the, uh, archetypes. We see the new world of, you know, uh, the military and science mixing with the with the southwestern cowboy and mm-hmm. where those two things uh, sort of clash. But and there was part of me that was like, this would almost make a an interesting double feature with something like Doctor Strange look because it almost mm-hmm. has that sure. type of archness to it. But uh, admittedly, much less nihilistic. Yeah. See, that's all the things. Like how I just so I love this movie. So I was like, <laughs> I was here for it. So everything you just said, I'm like, yes. That's why it's so rich <laughs> as a movie and so wonderful. Because you're just like, I feel like we're just like scratching the surface of what's going on, um, and just uh, there's just a lot, a lot on his mind. While at the same time, it's visually compelling and hilarious so yeah i thought it was i don't know and i and actually i didn't feel that maybe it's because i'm making a meta movie but the meta-ness <laughs> i was like i thought it was i don't know for me this really added to i guess the i guess the thematic um kind of exploration of the film and the questions it was raising and I thought some of the scenes were really great between like Edward Norton as like the Tennessee Williams inspired playwright. Yeah. I yeah. thought were like really <laughs> just really fun. So. I, I to me I I agree like I I felt like that was where the movie was really invested was in this sort of story behind the stories, right? Like like all of the things that we're talking about is not the story. The story is about how these individual lives come together to make this story. This story, and and that's why I felt myself, I think, drawn more towards those sequences because that felt more real to me. Uh, sure. Because every time we would go back to Asteroid City, there was constantly this sort of attention being brought to it that like this isn't real. Like this is, this is a reflection of something else. And so I, I had a hard time getting invested in, in that stuff. Um, but in the stories behind it, and and I, I do feel like I want to give him credit for making, you know, a movie about, I mean, this isn't, you know, it's, technically not a movie about movies it's a movie about plays but for making a movie about the art while i felt like kind of taking a different look at it um uh, I, I think typically that sort of subject matter can can get a little self-aggrandizing um and and there's satire within that but this i i i felt like he did give me something fresh as far as that look at how art is created. Um, and, and I, I appreciate that. I, I just felt like to me, that's where the story really was 
but we spent most of it with the fake stuff. We spent most of it within the play within the movie. And and to me, that was just, while very funny at times, much less interesting. <laughs> I feel like you two have like... <laughs> Like the opposite. <laughs> yeah. You're like I love I love the not Astrid City stuff. Oh, I love the Astrid City stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love the look of Asteroid City. I I loved the feel of it. I just I felt like I could never really get invested in it. Oh, but what about those conversations between Scarlett Johansson and Jason Schwartzman? I was those were those were I uh, highlights. I think those were particularly great. Um, I also very much uh, appreciated his three daughters. Um, <laughs> I, I thought there was a lot of fun there. Like again, I thought it was very funny, and and there was a lot of good stuff. I just couldn't feel myself fully letting go and just experiencing it. I really love the Brainiacs, and if you if you were to if you were to give me final cut or a pass at the screenplay, I would say those are your characters. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the adult characters are interesting, but these kids are the, like those those scenes in particular. This idea that they've they're sort of one step ahead of the adults yeah. because they're all. You know, they're all hyper-intelligent in their own ways, and they're all uh, forward-thinking and, and and thinking about science. I think he's having this discussion of, again, old world versus new world, and we're, sure, we're seeing yeah. that in those characters. And their conception of uh, science is a lot more theoretical as opposed to what? utilitarian. It's a lot more theoretical, and in that way, it's a lot more pure, right? Like, there, yeah. there is a genuine curiosity to these characters um, uh, because they, they don't have that sort of cynical adult outlook yet. And I think there's, like, um, I don't the movie was just, like, even in the midst of, like, I think it's kind of a hopeful movie because, like, even in the midst of, like, upheaval, mm-hmm. like, stay curious keep making art um and i think we see that both in like the play that's being created but then also yeah in the younger generation that's like they're still staying curious about the world um and i think also like another interesting point or interesting kind of scenes are when school teachers trying to teach like mm-hmm. kind of the, the 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 universe or the galaxy even with the knowledge that everything is kind of shifted and um and the younger kids, again, being more interested in the new reality. I, I think right. that scene <laughs> is so beautiful because, uh, uh, yeah, like there's there's all of this, uh, this concept of like what we should know and then what we're genuinely interested in. Right. Like yeah. the, the facts about space are interesting. We just saw a fucking alien. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, and that sequence, like the way it's dealt with, is use of animation. Um, it reminded me yeah. this this movie reminded me of a more successful version of uh, the Jim Jarmusch film that came out the uh, uh, the one about zombies. What was it called? The Dead, the Dead Don't, Don't Die. Die. The Dead Don't Die. Yeah, which also had Tilda Swinton playing in a strange role. That's not. 
unusual for her. I was like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) (laughs) right. Um, But it it also kind of had this uh, this sort of pulpy um, alien aspect to it, and and this this sort of meta narrative. Um, This felt like a more successful, at least aesthetically successful version of that. But how perfect is Jake Ryan, the kid? Playing Jason Schwartzman's son. Well, immediately my my wife turned to me and goes, "Is that his real son?" And I'm like, "I don't know. Maybe. Like, (laughs) they look exactly alike. They sound so similar. Just yeah." yeah. And he's about the age that Schwartzman would have been during uh, Rushmore. Rushmore. I, I think he's probably a few years younger, but. Uh, I I recognize him from the movie Eighth Grade, where he oh, played this that. like he played this awkward, dorky teenager, like the only one that really connects with Isla Fisher. And I, I guess he was also in Moonrise Kingdom. It shows in his credits there were a lot of like kids in that mm. movie, so I don't <laughs> yeah. think he had a speaking role, um, or at least not one that comes to mind. He perfect. In the movie, especially uh, playing opposite Schwarzman. Steve Carell had this tiny little performance. I guess it was originally written for uh, Bill Murray, but he couldn't be in it. So they just recast. See, I thought that Tom Hanks got the Bill Murray part because uh, Tom Hanks is new to to Wes Anderson's repertory. Um, Yeah. And, you know, this wouldn't be the first time we've seen Bill Murray play, uh, you know, sort of a disproving uh, father, father figure. figure in a Wes yeah. Anderson movie. Um, again, Ashley was like, is this the movie that Bill Murray got like kicked out of? <laughs> he got COVID, so he couldn't. Like, oh, no. Shooting, oh, OK. And so he couldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> this was one of my favorite. um uh, movie performances I've seen from Steve Carell. Like, I, I feel like this is exactly his lane of like being that guy who shows up and is like your favorite person on screen. And then you forget about him. Uh, just character work. This is what he originally yeah. started doing. You know, when you think yeah. of like him on the daily show or whatever, um, it's still sort of strange to me that he became like as big as he did. Uh, because I still think of him as as an actor well, playing a newsman. As, uh, Brick from Weatherman. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, oh from oh yeah, from Anchorman. Yeah, yeah, Anchorman. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really like Tom Hanks in this. He, I I've struggled with Hanks for a while. I think he's yeah. he's not aging into whatever version of his career is he's in right now and he's doing a lot of like fat suit funny rubber nose kind of characters lately a lot of fucking voices that's for sure elvis this like it was definitely a role that he is and can play uh but isn't he's not leaning on the likable tom hanks that we all grew up and knew and loved like he's still Stretching himself as an as an actor, but found a sort of a comfortable lane. 
so much more subdued than I have seen him in so long that I was yeah. like, okay, you're you're actually like using your face and your body to express things mm-hmm. besides just a silly voice. I, I agree. This is very uh, refreshing movie for Tom Hanks. I thought. Yeah. Um... All right, you guys have talked me into liking it more than I think I maybe initially did. <laughs> I mean, I think Yay. a lot of his movies are like that. I, mean, I don't know if, you know, yeah. there's, there's very few exceptions where Wes Anderson come away from one of his films with a, a static position until I've seen it maybe two or three times. Even Darjeeling Limited, which is probably one of my least favorite movies of his i left i i liked it much more the second time i saw it than the first time and for that reason i should watch i should see french dispatch again i just remember very little like the french dispatch quite a bit i'm actually surprised to um hear that it didn't really work for you i would rewatch it because i thought i liked it the first time i watched it and the second time i watched it i was like Oh, wow. This is really good. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I think it's def- that one's definitely worth a rewatch. I, I, I think you might have a point there, Cassidy, especially with like his movies are so aesthetically driven and they're so layered that I, I do think it is very hard to sort of take them all in in your initial viewing because he is one of those directors where I think he is very interested in in nuance but he's also very interested in in broadness as well and mm-hmm. the combination of those two things i think can be jarring sometimes yeah totally yeah i his copycats that came out afterward after the first few films there were a lot of people who kind of bit his style a bit and of course, there's a lot of like everything from commercials to sketches to TikTok videos. Well, now you're seeing that the AI, yeah, and and it's like it's all it's, it's all kind of missing the so, point. It, it, exactly, because all they can sort of parody is the style, right. um, it, the the visual style. Without you know, like he does good movies like there there is a lot going on like the it, it, it i get someone being cold on his style but you cannot act like that is all that is there there was so much more than just a center framed shot and someone you know delivering a deadpan line right in pastel yeah yeah i mean everyone can can see what he's doing but Honestly, for me, it was watching the series of video essays that uh, critic Matt Zoller-Zeitz put out um, when he he did a a video essay for however many movies he were out of by that point. And when he would, you know, his shot by shots of where he's drawing his influences from the French New Wave or the English New Wave and, and you know, places you wouldn't think he would be drawing from, like comparing shots from Moonrise Kingdom to Terrence Malick's Badlands. 
Mm-hmm. And that really like well, opened and, and, up and I mean, his like, work. And even this is an example, right? This is his Western, right? That you can right. see the John Ford influence, but he uses it in in such a different way. You know what I mean? Like it, it, you get those vistas, but we it draws attention to the fact that these are sort of backdrop paintings and right. um uh, uh yeah I, I absolutely like there is more going on there so i yeah. i think maybe i talked myself into liking it a little bit more um i'm going to give it a b plus okay i i was at the beginning of this conversation i was a b minus i have you guys have convinced me also b plus <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Andy? Okay. If you're pressed, um, I don't know. I, I gave it an A. Shoot, I'll be I'll be liberal. I, I loved it, so I'll get yeah. it. Wanted. To, I think also that's part of it is I wanted to love it. Like I went into it being like, oh yeah, it's a new Wes Anderson, and I was like, yeah, it was a Wes Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think for me the only the only drawback for me is that the the two modes of the movie um, are not always in conversation with each other, or they seem like they're they're trying from two different sources of satire, as opposed to moving everything forward. Maybe upon repeat wings, I'd see what he's getting out a bit more on as far as that goes, but I, otherwise. I I, 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 here's the thing. I, I know going into a Wes Anderson movie, like even the ones that I don't like as much, uh, I, I know that I'm going to get something out of it, right? Like I know I'm going right. to get a certain quality. I would love to see him do something. Like, I, I, you know, I'll be there for, no matter what he does, but I would love to see him, uh, do something just totally like not with the storybook aesthetic, like to see if he could do like just something outside of that. I I, I get that he probably has no interest in that, but I, I would love to see him sort of shake off Wes Anderson as genre and get like, what would that look like? I, I'm just right. so curious. I think there's a Wes moment Anderson Marvel movie. <laughs> I I was thinking more like a Wes Anderson David Fincher, but sure. <laughs> oh, okay, because <laughs> he's got a darkness. He has that. He in does. Him. He does. Yeah. <laughs> well, essentially, you're just describing Noah Baumbach. <laughs> like, if you... yeah, honestly, that's true. <laughs> what is going to be the streaming homework for the next week's episode? Oh, yeah. Uh, for the next episode, we are going to be watching a Born on the Fourth of July starring Tom Cruise, and we're going to be watching it for Fourth of July. <laughs> It'll be released after Fourth of July, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, but for us, it, it, will, it will mean more for us. So watch along. OK, Andy, I want to thank you again for coming on to the episode and talking about your film and Asteroid City with us. But before I give off our spiel here at the end, where should people find you and your uh, fundraiser for your documentary? Yeah, so you can find me on any of the 
major social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Andy Motz, um, M-O-T-Z. And uh, if you go to Seed and Spark and search Mask, you'll be able to find uh, our crowdfunding page where you can contribute to the film. Um, you can also go to my website, andymotz.com, and find more information there. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics we brought up in this episode or previous, you can hit us up on a, at our email, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and leave us a DM there. We're also searchable under uh, uh, Facebook if you still have it. Uh, we're on Letterbox where you can see all of the movies that we do for our streaming homework under different lists I've put together and regularly update. And uh, we're on TikTok. We got some clips going up there and hopefully some more coming soon. I don't know. We're on all the things. Check for MacGuffin Pod. <laughs> um, and be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on whatever podcast app you use to listen to us on, specifically iTunes or Spotify. Uh, the more reviews and ratings we get, the further we're pushed up the film and television category algorithm, or however that works. You can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. You can read the reviews I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews or Idaho State Journal arts and entertainment page and that'll take you to the review archives and be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in where you can also find uh, the podcast archived. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Um, also, if you're interested, come uh, see me perform live. I perform uh, with an improv show, Improv vs. Stand-Up, at Mockingbird Improv. Um, you can find those on social media as well. All right, Andy. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Yes, thank you so much. Giving us more information on your documentary. I'm really interested to see it when it comes out, when it becomes available. So... Uh, I want to stress that people go and donate what they can. It's basically done, right? Like it's like at this point, all you're really doing is your all the post production stuff, color correction, mixing and mastering audio, um, some of the less glamorous aspects of movie making, but nonetheless very important. Yeah, we're so close. Yeah, that's those are that's all we need to do. So, any little bit would be much appreciated. And that is the end of the episode. How long can they keep us in Asteroid City? Legally, I mean. <laughs> <laughs>